You are listening to audio from the Mariner campus of CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. So great to see you this morning. If, uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet before, my name's Sam. I serve as one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, just uh, right off the top, just want to say a huge happy Father's Day to all the fathers. And I know John was, yeah, we can clap and celebrate all the dads. You know, being a dad is no easy task. <laughs> it, is, it is so much fun. It's like one of the best things ever. And it's also so incredibly difficult and, and, and is such a need for patience and self-control and grit more than most things on earth. And nothing has refined my character more than, than parented and raising kids. And so I just want to say to all you dads who have showed up day after day after day and, and loved your families, loved your kids imperfectly, but done the very best that you can. You know, as well to all the men in the room who might not be biological fathers, um, but maybe you have poured into the next generation, be it through you know, younger siblings that you took on the role of dad with, or, or, or uh, nieces and nephews, or maybe within the context of our church through youth ministry, or kids ministry, or young adults, whatever the case is for you, we, just, we honor you today. In this church, there are many, many, hundreds of men of strong character who give and who serve and who love and lead with integrity and strength. And so today, we just say happy Father's Day. Don't stop. Keep going. Keep pursuing Jesus with all your heart. Lead, and let's together show the next generation what it looks like to be men after God's own heart. Amen? Amen. 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 Happy Father's Day. Well, this morning, we are continuing the series that we're in in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have a Bible, would you turn to Matthew chapter 5? We're going to pick up in verse 17. Matthew chapter 5 verse 17, and uh, if you're new or you've been away for any length of time, let me just catch you up and fill you in on what, what we've kind of been working through since Easter over these spring months. We just finished about nine weeks, a nine-week stretch of talks about the first portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's called the Beatitudes. We worked through kind of line by line, phrase by phrase, what Jesus describes as what happens when, when the gospel gets a hold of a person. When someone becomes transformed by Jesus and what it looks like to live into this new kingdom nature, he talks about they become poor in spirit. They mourn over their sin and the state of the world. He says they're meek, or you could say gentle, merciful. They're obsessed with righteousness, being in right relationship with God and, and with one another. They're pure in heart. They're peacemakers. He says they should expect persecution for their faith. This is the Beatitudes. And, you know, I, I've personally, I've loved this series. You know, it's been fun to, to teach it, but also to sit under so many of the different teachers that have, have been up here and sharing on, on, on this sermon from Jesus. And even uh, Tuesday nights, I don't know if any of you have come out, but David and, and other teachers in our community have done a deep dive into these beatitudes, these different um, statements from Jesus. And then even my community group, we've worked through it kind of line by line, week by week, saying, okay, well, what does this mean for just like the everyday, ordinary stuff of my life? And so I've been so grateful for it, and it's been so good. And then we come to this section of, of scripture that a lot of scholars describe today's text as like the theological hinge of the Sermon on the Mount. Like if the first section is called the Beatitudes, then you could refer to the second section as the Do-attitudes. It unpacks kind of how we're to live as the people of God. Jesus moves from kingdom character to kingdom behavior. 
So to those of you who are kind of done with the abstract and you want something practical, it's coming. Welcome to summer at CA Church. But before Jesus goes in to give any sort of specifics about this kingdom behavior, he makes something so clear off the top. He says that what I'm presenting to you what I've come, this new kingdom that I've come to inaugurate, it's not something new. It's not something that's different or at odds with the Old Testament. But instead that he's expanding on and bringing a sense of clarity of newness to something that's very old. So if you're willing and able, would you stand with me as we look into this passage, as we read it together? Matthew chapter five, we'll start reading in verse 17. This is Jesus speaking. Here's what he says. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can take a seat. You know, this book that many of you are holding right now in your lap that we were just reading from, it's, it's an ancient collection of different writings that we refer to as the Bible. You know, we often think of it as a single book, but it's actually a library of all sorts of different literature, all sorts of different genres of writing. Um, most of it's story or narrative, you could say, but there's also poetry and, and there's memoirs and there's a genealogy, there's prophecy, a bunch of wisdom one-liners with 140 characters or less. There, there's, there's several letters that are written by the apostles, biographies of Jesus. There's a genre of literature we don't even have anymore called apocalyptic literature. There's so much in here, so much in, in scripture, in the Bible. It was written by over two dozen different authors over a stretch of about a thousand years. There are parts of the Bible like Genesis chapter one that was part of an oral tradition from before the time of Moses, which is a very long time ago. And then there's other parts, like the biography of Matthew that we just read together a moment ago that, that, that dates just two decades after the life of Jesus, after his resurrection. This, this is the best-selling book of all time. It's had a tremendous role in shaping the course of human history. And yet many people today, even many Christians today, have a very complicated relationship with this book, especially with the first half really struggling to make sense of, of, of how it all works together. Because maybe it's because of misreadings of certain portions and passages that have led to oppressive behavior, or, or because they haven't actually read the entire thing or spent time to understand what it says, or, or maybe because the God of the Old Testament at times can seem so different from Jesus and his way and, and, and the kingdom. In any case, I talk to people every day who are struggling to make sense of this very text. You know, in, in the mid-century, in the mid-second century, I should say, there was a guy named Marcion. He was a theologian, he was a thought leader who loved the teachings of Jesus. Like, he really, really liked Jesus and his teachings, but he hated the Old Testament. He couldn't wrap his head around the fact that this Jesus was connected to the law and the prophets and the wars in the Old Testament, even the God of the Old Testament. And so Marcion decided that they weren't connected, and what he did is he actually rewrote the New Testament. He, he eliminated any reference in the, Old Test, in the New Testament to the old. 
So anytime Jesus or one of the other kind of writers of the New Testament referenced the Old Testament, he cut those parts out. Um, so now Marcion was, was quickly labeled a heretic. Actually, I think he was the first labeled heretic of the Christian faith. That's quite a title and something to be remembered for. But, but his ideas still gained a lot of momentum. And there's, there's still echoes of his teaching and his ideas that, are, that even find themselves here today. In more recent years, there was a popular book out that suggested that Christians should unhitch their faith from the Old Testament. That Christians should exclusively root their faith in the person of Jesus and unhitch from this like stumbling block that is the Old Testament. And that idea, it's becoming more and more popular today. And it doesn't necessarily go by the title Marcionism. But I've talked to many people over the past few years that, that say something to the effect of, I'm totally fine with Jesus. I actually like Jesus' teachings. I like Jesus. I just don't like the Bible. I like Jesus. I just don't really like the Old Testament. I follow him. I accept him as God. I'm just not really into the rest of it. The problem with that position is that Jesus actually doesn't leave room for that. He doesn't allow us to make that separation, that divide. In several places throughout the gospel accounts, and especially in the teaching text that we're looking at today, Jesus is very clear that to him, the Old Testament scripture is the inspired word of God, that it's unchangeable, uneditable, and that's something that holds tremendous value, importance for his kingdom people. He says, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. I like the way that KJV says that verse. It says, not, not a single jot or tittle will disappear. <laughs> but if you think about the Greek alphabet, or if you think about any alphabet, he's saying not the smallest serif, not the smallest kind of swoop, not the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. That is a very high view of Hebrew scripture coming from Jesus. He doesn't leave room for us to kind of take it or leave it or to pick and to choose. He says scripture is authoritative, it's permanent, and it's unchanging. I like the way that Andrew Wilson talks about the relationship between Jesus and the Bible. Here's what he says. He says, I actually don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him and I've decided to follow him. So if he talks and acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, then I will too. And so our text, it opens with Jesus saying these words. He says, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. You know, and we don't know the backstory here. But for Jesus to share these words, it's safe to assume that within the crowd that had gathered to listen to his sermon that afternoon, that there were probably those who thought that this new rabbi, this revolutionist called Jesus, that he was kind of going off script and, and that he was doing away with the teachings of Moses and the other biblical authors. The question that Jesus is answering here may have come up because in Jesus' life and ministry, it seemed as though he had broken the laws. He healed people on the Sabbath day. That was like an absolute no-no from the customs of the day. Or maybe because he regularly hung out with tax collectors and sinners, something that in, in their Jewish customs of the day, a, a Jewish person would never do. Or it could be necessary for Jesus to address the law and the prophets right here at the, at the crux of his sermon because the Beatitudes that we just went through as a church, they could leave a person wondering if, if, if there's any place in the kingdom, in Jesus' kingdom that he's been inaugurating, for the law, or has it just done away with it? Whatever reason, Jesus is answering this question. What do you say about the Old Testament, Jesus? 
the Ten Commandments, the law of Moses. Does your new mantra to love God and to love others, does it have any place for the law? Or does it kind of abolish it? Does it leave it in the dust? Is it completely irrelevant today? Jesus says, no. Don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. He says, I'm not introducing something new. I'm bringing a newness to something very old. I'm helping you understand what God, what Yahweh was actually after all along. This phrase, the law and the prophets that Jesus uses here, it's referring to what we call the Old Testament. The law, it's often referred to as the Torah. It's the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then the the prophets is Jesus kind of shorthand of referring to the rest of the Old Testament scripture. So he's saying, no, don't pin my teachings in my way against the revelation of Yahweh that we find in all of these different books and scriptures and scrolls. I haven't come to abolish that. I've actually come to fulfill it. And that word fulfill is interesting word choice here for Jesus, because I want, I want you to notice something. It would seem so much more natural for Jesus to say, you know, I haven't come to abolish the law, but I've come to obey it. I haven't come to abolish it to obey it, right? Like, obey would be the opposite of abolish, but he doesn't say that. He doesn't say I've come to obey the law, though he will perfectly obey and live out the law, but he says I've come to fulfill it. That is a bold claim. To fulfill it. And what does that even mean? What does Jesus mean that he will fulfill the law and the prophets? Well, the truth is, it is multifaceted. There is several meanings to what Jesus is saying here, but I want to highlight a few of them. First, I want to I look at what, what Jesus means by fulfill is that all the messianic prophecies were about him. He's the one that the prophets of old were pointing to. In other words, the entire story, going all the way back to Genesis chapter one, it was all building towards this moment where God himself would come in the person of Jesus and would restore what was broken, where he would set the world right again. This is where the story was going all along. It was God's long-term plan for restoration and renewal of all things. See, the Jewish people, they were expecting the Messiah to come, for God to send a rescuer who who would set the captives free. And there were all these prophecies throughout Scripture. All these prophecies throughout the, the Old Testament spanned over thousands of years. There's actually over 300 prophecies coming down to the location of the Messiah's birth where he'd be born, what kind of animal he'd ride into the city on, specifics around his death and what his resurrection would look like. Uh, There's there's actually this mathematician, his name is Peter Stoner. He He lived in the 19th century, or 20th century rather. But he applied the modern science of probability to just eight of these prophecies. So he chose eight of the 300 prophecies. And, uh, and after doing some calculations, he, he concluded that the chance of a single person fulfilling just eight of the 300 prophecies was, was, was one in one to the power of 17. So one with 17 zeros, after, or 10 to the power of 17, one with 17 zeros after it. And you know, I'm not a math whiz, but that is not great odds of fulfilling all the prophecies. He, he illustrated that point, this mathematician, by saying that if you laid out quarters, if you laid out one to the power of 17 quarters across the whole state of Texas, and I don't know why he chose Texas, but if you did over the whole state of Texas, it would leave you with quarters two feet deep. And so he said the probability, the chance of somebody, one person fulfilling all of these prophecies that spanned over nearly a thousand years, coming true in one person, was the chance of, of putting an X on one of those quarters, throwing it into the state of Texas, stirring the whole thing up, putting someone there and saying, find the coin. It was like next to impossible. 
So in other words, it was, it was next to impossible for all the messianic prophecies to be fulfilled, but they were in Jesus, every last one of them. And not only did he fulfill the prophecies, but in doing that, in fulfilling them, he made sense of the whole story. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen one of those movies where you're watching it towards, throughout the whole movie until you get to the end. And, and where you thought the movie was going, there's all these twists toward the end, and, and then you're like, oh, I thought it was going over here, but it was actually going over here. Like, there's, there's all these sorts of mind-bender movies now, like Interstellar or a bunch of new ones that have recently come out. But it's kind of like you thought the movie was about this, and that this was the good, this is what was happening, this is what was going on. And, and then in the final moments, all the pieces start to come together, and you realize that it actually wasn't about that at all. It was actually about this. That's what Jesus does to the story of God. Once you encounter this central figure of the story and understand the part that his life, death, and resurrection plays in in the universe, in the grander story of God, you look back at all these different puzzle pieces that on their own maybe actually didn't make a lot of sense, but you look back and it all starts to come together. As Christians, we read the Old Testament backwards, or I should say through the lens of Jesus and his work on the cross. It's like watching that movie a second time through with all the unexpected twists, but you know where it's going. You know where it's going to. You look back at the Old Testament, you say, oh, that's what the prophet Ezekiel was talking about. I didn't see that the first time. That's what the the prophet Isaiah was referring to. And you you even start to see typologies or shadows of Jesus in the characters and the stories of the Old Testament. It's all pointing towards him. John Stott, he said, the Old Testament is the gospel in the bud. The New Testament is the gospel in full flower. Jesus is what the flower looks like in full bloom. God God always intended to come and to be with his people and to rescue us from the horrible mess that we've made of the world. And in Jesus, we see it all come to fulfillment. He fulfills the prophecies. He's the climax of the whole story. He also fulfills the law. And I wanna get a little bit technical here for a moment, so stay with me. Let me just nerd out on you for a sec. Because I think it's important to differentiate between the different kinds of laws if we're going to understand the depth of what Jesus is saying here. There's three different categories of Jewish laws. Does anyone know what they are? There's the, uh, there's the ceremonial laws, there's the civic laws, and then there's moral ethical laws. And Jesus f- f- fulfills all the different laws, these three different kinds of laws, but he does it in different ways. And I think it's important to say that and to lay out a bit of a framework that helps us nuance through how to make sense of it all because how do we know which commands from the Old Testament are necessary for us to follow today and which ones aren't? Like especially reading the Old Testament, Leviticus, let's say, it can be so confusing to, it can leave us wondering like why this law and not that law? Do Christians just kind of pick and choose which, which stuff from the Old Testament is still applicable for followers of Jesus and which parts aren't? Like we can eat pork chops now, bacon's not off limits, thank you Jesus. <laughs> Circumcision's not required and yet the 10 commandments are still this guiding principle for Jesus and he expects of his followers to, to keep. Why? And how do we know that? Well, for one, because the, the, the other New Testament authors, they help us to make sense of it all. Paul, for example, has a lot to say about how the law works and its place in the life of a believer. And, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But I also think it's really helpful to understand how the different laws in the Old Testament hold a place within the people of God. Some laws are eternal, They're important for for all of time, namely the Ten Commandments. These are God's vision for human flourishing. There are also other laws that are weaved throughout the Old Testament, laws that were for a time and a place. 
specifically for the people of Israel and are no longer necessary for us to follow. Not because they're bad, not because they're not important, but because the work of Jesus makes them no longer applicable. Let me explain. For starters, there's the ceremonial laws. These laws were were all about establishing, uh, enabling an, an unholy people to encounter the presence of a holy God. And so there were, there were all sorts of instructions of how they were to clean themselves, how many times they had to wash. And let me just say, the, the washing laws made, made Bonnie Henry's rules about washing your hands and singing happy birthday look like nothing. <laughs> there were instructions about how the priests were to prepare themselves in order to enter the temple, all the rituals that they had to follow in order to make themselves clean and to how to approach the presence of God, a lamb that had to be killed in order to atone for the sins of the people. And these ceremonial laws were important for a time. The ceremonial laws were critical before Jesus because they enabled a sinful humanity to interact with the holy God. But they were a placeholder. They were a tie-over until Jesus would come and the ceremonial laws would find their fulfillment in his work on the cross, where he would become the ultimate sacrifice for the sins of humanity, past, present, and future, where his blood would bring cleansing in a way that that a lamb never could where the temple veil would be torn open and we would have access to the presence of God through Jesus, our mediator. The author of Hebrews, he he talks about the ceremonial laws as a shadow of something ultimate, a shadow of something that was to come. They were pointing forward to a day when we would encounter the real thing. I was thinking, um, in July, my family is going on a vacation to California and we're gonna brave it and try to take our two little kids to Disneyland. And uh, Kinsley, my youngest daughter, is so excited. We probably talk about it almost every day and sometimes multiple times a day. But I bought her this little Mickey, this stuffed Mickey toy, and she has it on her bed. And so we often talk about Disneyland. I kind of got it to to build hype and excitement towards this trip that we're going on. And so every night or every morning she wakes up, we talk about Disneyland. And she says, I can't wait to see the real Mickey. And this is where my illustration breaks down a little bit because there is no real Mickey. Even the guy at Disneyland is just a guy in a costume. But that little doll, it represents something much greater, something that she's going to encounter on July 18th as we enter the magic kingdom. That's kind of like what's happening here with the law. It's pointing forward. It's a placeholder until the Messiah would come and would make everything that's wrong with the world right. In the Old Testament, you find the ceremonial laws. You also find civic laws. A lot of the Old Testament laws were national specific, really because Israel was a physical nation. Judaism wasn't just a religion, it was also a nation. Israel was a nation. So God gave clear instructions about how the people of Israel were to interact with other nations, how they were to live in harmony with one another, how they were to conduct themselves. But then Jesus shows up and he starts talking about this new and coming kingdom, God's kingdom coming to earth. And it moves from national to every tribe and tongue, every nation. It moves from this idea of God's people being citizens of a single nation to citizens of heaven. And we see that that terminology come up all throughout the New Testament. In Jesus, all the lines of separation that divided us from one another are erased. There's no more Jews and Gentiles. There's no more male or free. There's no more slave, or sorry, male or female, slave or free. We're, We're all one in Jesus. And so no matter what country we're from, no matter what country we live in, whether it's Canada or Turkey or Brazil or the Philippines or Israel, there is one king who stands over it all, and that's King Jesus. And so, so as, as people of God, yes, we, we absolutely obey the laws of the land wherever it is that we live, but, but, but our authority is much higher 
than that. Our authority is King Jesus and his way. And so the civic laws have been fulfilled in him and his new kingdom that he's inaugurated. And then lastly, there's the moral ethical laws. The way that Jesus fulfills these laws is different. Unlike the civil and ceremonial laws, these moral laws, they're not bound by time or space, but they do present this kind of blueprint from God of what it looks like for humans to flourish. Daryl Johnson, he said it like this, that Jesus fulfills the moral and ethical laws of God by confirming them, by embodying them, and by broadening them, drawing out their original intent. See, the moral law of God introduces, is introduced in the Ten Commandments on, on Mount Sinai, and then Jesus comes on the scene in this Sermon on the Mount, and he clarifies it. He draws it out in the Sermon on the Mount. When our preaching team spent some time with, with Daryl, with Daryl Johnson earlier this spring talking through the Sermon on the Mount, he shared this visual with us. You can put it on the screen, Minu. Thank you so much. I think it's really helpful in understanding what Jesus' treatment of the moral and ethical laws of God. And Daryl explained that, that Jesus saw the law, the, the law on Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, as this ark on the left side. That's the law. And so Jesus came, and he didn't come to do away with that ark. He didn't come away to do away with the law, but instead he came to round it out, to fulfill it, to deepen our understanding of it, to understand what God was always on about from the beginning. See, on, on, on Mount Sinai, God speaks his will into the world. That's the ark. For example, he says, you have no other gods before me. No one, you shouldn't murder. Do not commit adultery. And then Jesus comes into the world and he rounds out that circle. He brings the circle to completion. He expands it and deepens it. He fulfills it. And that's what we're gonna be covering over this next few weeks, all throughout the summer months, the series of statements that Jesus makes where he said, you've heard it said, referring to the Old Testament, the law, the, the Ten Commandments, but I say to you this. He's, Jesus says, you know, you've heard it said, do not murder. He's quoting the Ten Commandments. But I say to you that anyone who shows contempt to a brother or sister is subject to judgment. He's rounding it out. Saying, say, it's not just about the physical act of murder, but it's about what's going on in your heart. You can avoid murdering someone your whole life. You cannot murder your brother or your sister or your coworker that really bugs you. And maybe that's the basics of it. Like, yeah, don't murder. Don't do that. But Jesus says it's, it's possible for you to never kill someone but for your words and your attitude of contempt to be violent. You can have a murderous tongue. See, Jesus isn't contradicting the moral laws. He's saying, you've heard it said, and, and this is what I say to you. This is what God was after all along. I'm, I'm broadening it, giving it deeper meaning, bringing it around to completion. In certain places, he does speak against the cultural understanding of the law of the day, if there's a few aspects where Jesus says, you've heard it said, and he speaks to interpretations of the scribes and the Pharisees, and he brings it back to what Yahweh said from the beginning. See, it was never just about the act of murder. It was about the heart that led you there in the first place. The law goes far deeper than the external conformities. It addresses the posture of our hearts. They'll go on to say, you know, you've heard, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. Jesus is doing what Jesus always does and he's bringing it back to the heart. He's underlining and he's re-underlining the fact that it's, it's not about being externally clean. That it's not actually enough to do all the right things. No, what God is, he requires of us is inward transformation. It's about the heart. And that's why the last line of this text that we've been looking at, Matthew 5, verse 20, is actually quite confusing, at least at first read. 
you have it in front of you, you can look down at it right now because it almost feels at odds with, with Jesus' teaching in the Beatitudes just a few verses before. Let me read it for us. Chapter five, verse 20. He says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Wait. Is Jesus saying that unless we score higher than the Pharisees and the scribes, like unless we do a better job of keeping the law than the professional law keepers, the religious elites, then we won't enter the kingdom of heaven? I find that confusing for two reasons. One, because Jesus spent so much of his ministry critiquing the scribes and the Pharisees and their vision of righteousness, and now Jesus is presenting them as being on the moral high ground. They're the ones that we should model our life around. And then on top of that, it seems at odd with the, with, the, with the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Which one is it, Jesus? Does the kingdom belong to those who are poor in spirit, those who are spiritually bankrupt and they know it, or is it to those who perfectly keep the law? Here's what I think Jesus is saying. I think Jesus is saying that our righteousness should surpass the scribes and the Pharisees in kind rather than in degree in the kind of righteousness rather than in the degree of righteousness. It's not that Christians need to score higher marks than the Pharisees, like we kept 240 of the commands and they kept 220. No, it's not that we need to to be in competition with the, the professional law keepers of the first century. It's that we need an entirely different kind of righteousness. We need to go beyond their adherence to the law, their outward conformity. We need to experience the transformation of the heart. It's Pharisaical righteousness versus heart righteousness. It goes so much deeper than what we do and it addresses even why we do it. Remember what Jesus says to the Pharisees in chapter 23 of Matthew. He says, you hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside is full of greed and self-indulgence. If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about that text and I brought my old smoothie glass (laughs) with mold and gross stuff growing inside of it. And I said, I've been polishing the outside, but the inside is gross, Pharisaical righteousness was all about external conformity. Do, what, you know, do the right stuff, act the right way. It was all about performance, righteousness by works, maintaining this clean exterior, but leaving the inside completely a mess. And Jesus says, no, what the Father has always been after from the very beginning is the heart. And this is where the gospel comes in. Because in order to be made righteous, we don't just need some behavior modification. We need a new heart, one that's pliable and moldable, and that's exactly what Jesus gives us. He comes to inaugurate this new covenant where the law isn't just written on tablets of stone and, and, told, and we're told to obey, but it's written on every human heart. We're like the, the prophet Ezekiel spoke about years and years before. The Spirit of God comes to dwell in us and empowers us to live it out. See, Jesus will teach over and over again, and so will all the other New Testament authors, that we don't practice the law in order to be made right with God. We don't practice the law and then we're made righteous. No, because of what Jesus has done for us, because of his life and death and resurrection, because he lived the law perfectly, he stands in our place and his righteousness becomes our own. We are made right with God, not by our works, not by our law keeping, but because of Jesus There's this beautiful quote by a guy named Donald Hagner, a theologian and author. He was a professor at at Fuller Seminary for many years. And I wanna share his words with you because he summarizes this whole thing, I think, so well. 
He says, the dawning of the kingdom in the person of Jesus makes possible a new order of life and a new relationship with the Father. Jesus' ethical teachings are not followed in order to gain acceptance with God. This is important, I want you to hear this. Jesus' ethical teachings are not followed in order to gain acceptance with God or to bring the kingdom into existence. Instead, disciples, disciples begin with acceptance and the reality of the kingdom breaking in and they receive a transformed nature through that. Although this transformation doesn't enable them to fully live out the ideals in this age, nevertheless, it enables them to achieve far more than was possible before. Over the next few weeks, we're gonna be working through Jesus' incredible teachings on kingdom living, his broadening and rounding out of the moral law. Next week, we're gonna do a deep dive into anger and contempt, and I think it's gonna be really good. It's gonna be really helpful for us as a community. But here's the important backdrop to all of the teachings coming up over this next number of months. Here's what we need to keep returning to over and over again, that we're saved by grace. You're saved not by your ability to keep the law, not to, to, to your ability to abide by Jesus' teaching on the law. You're saved by grace. When you put your faith in Jesus, you become a citizen of the kingdom. And your eternity is secure, not because of your righteousness, but because of, of his, because of Jesus. And here's why this is important. Because any bit of law keeping, any bit of obedience on our part, it's not done to earn salvation or to earn God's favor, to make ourselves right before him. It's a response to what Jesus has done for us. We don't obey Jesus' moral teachings out of an obligation. We obey his teachings because we love him and we trust him. And if he says that living this way is the best way to live, that living this way is the way to flourishing, I don't know about you, but, but I buy it. I'm in. If this is what the author of life says, then I'll gladly follow. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, let's pray together. Well, Jesus, we are so grateful for this beautiful sermon that you preach, the Sermon on the Mount, the way that you've unpacked and help us to see more than maybe we've seen before of what it means to be fully human, what it means to be the people you've created us to be. So I even pray for us as we unpack what it looks like to, to live into kingdom behavior over this next season. Would you help us not to fall into pharisaical righteousness? That we would always be, be turning our hearts towards you. That we'd allow you to do a deep work in our hearts. I pray that we would begin to love the law. That as we follow you, as we follow your way, as we hear from you, that you would be working and molding and shaping us into your image. I pray for those today who, as they think about the law and they think about your standards and your vision for human flourishing, maybe there's guilt or shame because they haven't been able to live those things. I just pray that you would shower each of us with, with grace and mercy, that they would experience that today. And that together as a community, we would day by day continue in this long obedience in the same direction. As we fall, we would get back up. We love you, Lord. We do these things because we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. 
You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.